This is Puritans Read, where we read aloud great Puritan works, authors, and biographies. Today, episode 17 of The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. There are two or three things more that show how a godly man has contentment in a mysterious way different from any carnal heart in the world, as follows. Roman numeral 14. He has contentment by realizing the glorious things of heaven to him. He has the kingdom of heaven as present and the glory that is to come. By faith, he makes it present. So the martyrs had contentment in their sufferings, for some of them said, Though we have had a hard breakfast, yet we shall have a good dinner. We shall very soon be in heaven. Do but shut your eyes, said one, and you shall be in heaven at once. We faint not, says the apostle, Second Corinthians 4, 16. Why? Because these light afflictions that are but for a moment work for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. They see heaven before them, and that contents them. When you sailors see the haven before you, though you were mightily troubled before you could see any land, yet when you come near the shore and can see a certain landmark, that contents you greatly. A godly man in the midst of the waves and storms that he meets with can see the glory of heaven before him and so contents himself. One drop of the sweetness of heaven is enough to take away all the sourness and bitterness of all the afflictions in the world. We know that one drop of sourness or one drop of gall will make bitter a great deal of honey. Put a spoonful of sugar into a cup of gall or wormwood and it will not sweeten it. But if you put a spoonful of gall into a cup of sugar, it will embitter that. Now it is otherwise in heaven. One drop of sweetness will sweeten a great deal of sour affliction. But a great deal of sourness and gall will not embitter a soul who sees the glory of heaven that is to come. A carnal heart has no contentment but from what he sees before him in this world. But a godly heart has contentment from what he sees laid up for him in the highest heavens. Roman numeral 15. The last thing that I would mention is this. A godly man has contentment by opening and letting out his heart to God. Other men or women are discontented, but how do they help themselves? By abuse, by bad language. Someone crosses them and they have no way to help themselves but by abuse and bitter words. And so they relieve themselves in that way when they are angry. But when a godly man is crossed, how does he relieve himself? He is aware of his cross as well as you, but he goes to God in prayer and there opens his heart 
to God and lets out his sorrows and fears and then can come away with a joyful countenance. Do you find that you can come away from prayer and not look sad? It is said of Hannah that when she had been at prayer, her countenance was no more sad. 1 Samuel 1.18 She was comforted. This is the right way of contentment. Thus we have done with the mystery of contentment. Now, if you can but put these things together that we have spoken of, you may see fully what an art Christian contentment is. Chapter 5. How Christ Teaches Contentment. Contentment is not such a poor business as many make it. They say, you must be content, and so on. But Paul needed to learn it, and it is a great art and mystery of godliness to be content in a Christian way. And it will be seen to be even more of a mystery when we come to show what lessons a gracious heart learns when it learns to be contented. I have learned to be contented. What lessons have you learned? Take a scholar who has great learning and understanding in arts and sciences. How did he begin? He began, as we say, his ABC, and then afterwards, he came to his testament and Bible and accidents. Footnote here that accidents is the part of grammar that deals with inflections. And so to his grammar and afterwards to his other books. So he learned one thing after another. So a Christian coming to contentment is as a scholar in Christ's school. And there are many lessons to teach the soul to bring it to this learning. Every godly man or woman is a scholar. It cannot be said of any Christian that he is illiterate, but he is literate, a learned man, a learned woman. Now the lessons that Christ teaches to bring us to contentment are these. Number one, the lesson of self-denial. It is a hard lesson. You know that when a child is first taught, he complains, this is hard. It is just like that. I remember Bradford, the martyr, said, Whoever has not learned the lesson of the cross has not learned his ABC in Christianity. This is where Christ begins with his scholars, and those in the lowest form must begin with this. If you mean to be Christians at all, you must buckle to this, or you can never be Christians. Just as no one can be a scholar unless he learns his ABC, so you must learn the lesson of self-denial, or you can never become a scholar in Christ's school and be learned in this mystery of contentment. That is the first lesson that Christ teaches any soul, self-denial, which brings contentment, which brings down and softens a man's heart. You know how when you strike something soft, it makes no noise, but if you strike a hard thing, it makes a noise. So with 
the hearts of men who are full of themselves and hardened with self-love. If they receive a stroke, they make a noise, but a self-denying Christian yields to God's hand and makes no noise. When you strike a wool sack, it makes no noise because it yields to the stroke. So, a self-denying heart yields to the stroke and thereby comes to this contentment. Now, there are several things in this lesson of self-denial. I will not enter into the doctrine of self-denial, but only show you how Christ teaches self-denial and how that brings contentment. Number one, such a person learns to know that he is nothing. He comes to this to be able to say, well, I see I am nothing in myself. That man or woman who indeed knows that he or she is nothing and has learned it thoroughly will be able to bear anything The way to be able to bear anything is to know that we are nothing in ourselves. God says to us, Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? Proverbs 23, 5, speaking of riches. Why, blessed God, do not you do so? You have set your heart upon us, and yet we are nothing. God would not have us set our hearts upon riches because they are nothing. And yet God is pleased to set his heart upon us, and we are nothing. That is God's grace, free grace, and therefore it does not much matter what I suffer, for I am as nothing. Number two, I deserve nothing. I am nothing, and I deserve nothing. Suppose I lack this and that thing which others have. I am sure that I deserve nothing except it be hell. You will answer any of your servants who is not content. I wonder what you think you deserve, or your children. Do you deserve it, that you are so eager to have it? You would stop their mouths thus, and so we may easily stop our own mouths. We deserve nothing, and therefore why should we be impatient? If we do not get what we desire, if we had deserved anything, we might be troubled, as in the case of a man who has deserved well of the state or of his friends, yet does not receive a suitable reward. It troubles him greatly, whereas if he is conscious that he has deserved nothing, he is content with a rebuff. Number three. I can do nothing. Christ says, without me, you can do nothing. John fifteen five. Why should I make much of it to be troubled and discontented if I have not got this and that, when the truth is that I can do nothing? If you were to come to one who is angry because he has not got such food as he desires and is discontented with it, you would answer him, I marvel what you do or what use you are. Should one who will sit still and be of no use, yet for all that, have all the supply that he could possibly desire? 
do but consider of what use you are in the world, and if you consider what little need God has of you and what little use you are, you will not be much discontented. If you have learned this lesson of self-denial, though God cuts you short of certain comforts, yet you will say, Since I do but little, why should I have much? This thought will bring down a man's spirit as much as anything. Number four, I am so vile that I cannot of myself receive any good. I am not only an empty vessel, but a corrupt and unclean vessel that would spoil anything that comes into it. So are all our hearts. Every one of them is not only empty of good, but is like a musty bottle that spoils even good liquor that is poured into it. Number five, if God cleanses us in some measure and puts into us some good liquor, some grace of his spirit, yet we can make use of nothing when we have it, if God but withdraws himself. If God leaves us one moment after he has bestowed upon us the greatest gifts and whatever abilities we can desire, if God should say, I will give you them, now go and trade, we cannot progress one foot further if God leaves us. Does God give us gifts and abilities? Then let us fear and tremble, lest God should leave us to ourselves, for then how foully should we abuse those gifts, and abilities. You think that other men and women have memory and gifts and abilities, and you would fain have them, but suppose God should give you these and then leave you. You would utterly spoil them. Number six, we are worse than nothing. By sin, we become a great deal worse than nothing. Sin makes us more vile than nothing and contrary to all good. It is a great deal worse to have a contrariety to all that is good than merely to have an emptiness of all that is good. We are not empty pitchers in respect of good, but we are like pitchers filled with poison. And is it much for such as we are to be cut short of outward comforts? Number seven, if we perish, we will be no loss. If God should annihilate me, what loss would it be to anyone? God can raise up someone else in my place to serve him in a different way. Well, on this very contrary to current world philosophy, we conclude episode 17 of Jeremiah Burroughs, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. <laughs>